Well, good morning. That, that is going to make me insecure. We're going to have to try this again. I'm a little rusty. I'm new at this. So, good morning. <laughs> well, it really is good to be here with y'all, uh, despite the fact that most people would say they would, they would rather to choose this second right after death. Uh, so, I'm saying it anyway. It's really good to see y'all here this morning. Well, as Jake said, we're right in the middle of uh, the Explore God series, and 370 churches in our city, this is still really incredible to me, are, are uh, doing this series together and really wrestling over today's topic. And I think wrestling is the right word. Uh, today's uh, topic is stated in a question, which uh, is, how could God allow pain and suffering? These are all uh, taken as problems, you might say, uh, or objections to the Christian faith. And this is a real one. This is a big problem. It's, it's, it's no small um, topic here. It's one that all these, like I say, these 370 churches are wrestling over, and just quite honestly one that I personally am wrestling over as well. I want to begin just by stating the problem or objection as I hear it often. Um, I just want to read it here. This is how it could be said. That if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, he might be good but not all-powerful. If he could stop it but he won't, he might be all-powerful uh, but not good. Either way, the traditional God of the Bible cannot exist, possibly some other God or no God at all, but not the good and powerful God that the Bible depicts. Uh, I heard another person, uh, read another person say that this problem real similarly as y'all, it's hard to, already in my mind to feel like it's this long ago, but the end of '04 when the tsunami hit the rim of the Indian Ocean and a quarter million people, you know, they estimate died in that terrible event. Um, one, one reporter uh, wrote this a few weeks afterwards, kind of reflecting on it, and the article was like, kind of where was God, essentially? And he said the question real similarly, that if God is God, uh, he's not good. Um, if he's, uh, I'm sorry, God's God, he's not good. If he's good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Well, what do we say about this? This is it's a big topic, a big issue, an important one that probably faces everyone in the room in some way, shape, or form. Um, it might be uh, hard for you to believe this, but I've actually been in some type of Christian ministry for 15 years now. And just about a year, uh, maybe almost a year and a half ago, I uh, did a memorial service for an eight-year-old boy uh, who died from uh, cancer. And I uh, had the uh, really challenging task of doing that memorial service uh, for that family and friends that I actually was kind of meeting in the process. That was really a tough endeavor. And I just want to share a little bit today of some of what I talked about uh, that day. From the outset here, let me just tell you a little bit of what I, I hope to accomplish here. Um, when you're personally in the middle of something, something hard or pain, it's really hard to think. That's been my experience. Um, today I want to be able to speak to your mind a little bit so that when your heart you know, is, is buried under with sorrow or pain, uh, that your mind uh, can lead you safely home. I'd like to, to, to hope to be able to do that today. Here's how we'll proceed. I want to talk at about first one way not to face evil and suffering in the world, and then three ways to face it. One way not to, and three ways to. 
So first let's begin. This, this is uh, pretty quick here. But one way not to face evil and suffering. You know, we're, we're dealing with this as an objection to the Christian faith, right? Uh, this passage that Ellie read in 1 Peter, he's actually writing to people that have suffered a pretty great amount. And as he anticipates, and actually as history played out, they would suffer uh, even more. And so he, he's writing to them, encouraging them to actually hang on to their faith. But one of the ways that we can respond in the middle of pain and suffering is actually to uh, pull back from uh, you know, belief in God or possibly to abandon it altogether. Now, I don't say that uh, judgmentally or anything like that. I actually understand that. I think it's a very natural response uh, to do that. But I want to talk about that for a moment um, because Peter argues in here that, that suffering can actually strengthen your faith. You know? how, how does that work? We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I just want to talk about just for a brief moment how really abandoning or even just lessening your faith in God doesn't help uh, deal with pain and suffering. Let me show you that just through a few illustrations here. You know, one um, was reflecting or, or just thinking back on in, uh, the, the early part really before the civil rights movement began. And some of you might say that that's not done, right? <laughs> if you've been to the Deep South, that racism is not dead in our country. But think of how strong it was, you know, at least from reading about it, right? And uh, Martin Luther King had a big part in that to play that led him actually to quite a bit of suffering himself. And he wrote, some of you have probably read these, the letters that he wrote from Birmingham prison to his congregation, kind of during the heat of all this, right? And he appeals to them in one of his letters to his congregation, trying to give them motivation to do their peaceful protests against these unjust laws, right? Jim Crow law and stuff like that. And so he writes them this letter and he says to, to his congregation, he said, one might well ask, How can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. You you hear what he's doing there, right? Here he's trying to battle something that I think all of us in the room would agree is... um, you know, moral outrage, right? The, the, uh, the laws and codes and, and practices that were throughout the South and, you know, other parts of our country as well, right? In this deep racism. And he's appealing to his congregation, I would say it this way, in a way to be more Christian in their fight a- against these laws. In other words, you know, here, he, here's a guy who's, who's in prison for this deal, and he's, try, he's trying to look for a reason why they can pros, proceed in these, you know, peaceful protests. And, and it's interesting when you read those letters, he really appeals to them to let the, the ends and the means both be moral. But, but what he appeals to in both cases is that there has to be a higher law to compare it to, or else, how can we really call this unjust? If there's not a, a standard, a benchmark of God himself to which to compare and contrast justice and injustice, to, to, to know what, how the world should be, and therefore to know what to call pain and unpain, right? He's appealing, he's appealing to a higher law in this. Um, a lot of you all have probably read C.S. Lewis. I, I really love reading him, not only his children's stories, and uh, my kids, we've read several of those, but I, I just love how he thinks in his story of coming to know Christ. Uh, and I just want to share his illustration, too. One of the things, um, he described how originally he had kind of rejected the idea of God, looking at the cruelty and pain in the world, right? And uh, he, as he's kind of processing over this, he realized that, that evil was actually more problematic for his, his atheism. And in the end, he realized that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. 
Uh, let me read you what he said here. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing more uh, than a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For that argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turned out to be uh, too simple. And a lot of you all know his story of later um, kind of moving from atheism as he confronted that issue, letting him, led him straight to faith in Jesus Christ as he describes himself in the Bible. Um, one last thing on this, on this first point. Um, it's really been pretty, pretty common now, I think, in, in more of the modern, at least philosophical writing, to, to deal with that question differently. In other words, when you get to the problem of pain and suffering, it was, for an era it was real common to say this was a strong argument against the existence of God. It's really been a strong turning point in, in the last few decades. And uh, Tim Keller, another one of my heroes, kind of sums up how that thought has developed. And he, he, uh, he just says this. He says, uh, Tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen, does it uh, doesn't mean that there can't be one. With some time and perspective... Most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in our lives. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of them? If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing, uh, for allowing it continue that you can't know. That helps me to a point. But I, I kind of want to transition and really, uh, you know, I, I think all that in the kind of world of philosophy, um, like I say, there's helpful to a point, but I kind of want to stop it now. <laughs> uh, and here's why. If, if you're a person in here that uh, maybe you're actually experiencing some suffering now, some pain uh, in your life, or you're, you're still reflecting over it and it's in the past, but... Um, the coals are still burning, you know, from that. Um, this, doesn't, this doesn't solve everything, right? Th- this problem is not philosophical in nature. It's personal. And even, f- even for me as well. Wow, <laughs> didn't see that. On uh, Saturday, uh, this is easier on paper. On Saturday, uh, my family and I will remember uh, two years since uh, we lost my sister, uh, to cancer, and uh, we got together with uh, her husband, uh, brother-in-law last night, had a really good time with him, get together with my family this week as well, but even this problem, uh, even it's very personal, uh, and even beyond that, our family as well, I'll read, <laughs> okay, let me just move on, my point here, this is, this is all on this first, lessening belief in God, or even abandoning that he's real and present in our lives, uh, doesn't help in suffering. What will? Let's look at that next. I want, I want to talk here about three, you know, especially looking at this text, three ways that we can face evil and suffering. 
Um, let me just say, say those briefly here, and we'll take them one at a time. First, I want to talk about we need to look back at something. We need to look ahead at something, and we need to look into something. Look back, look ahead, look into. So first, look back. If you look at verse uh, 7 in First Peter, he uses uh, an interesting analogy here. He says, uh, talking about their faith that's more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, uh, that they may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His imagery there, right, is, is uh, a furnace, you know, that you, you test metals in and, and burn off the, 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 the parts you don't want, the impurities, right? Which is a very interesting analogy when it comes to uh, pain and suffering. Some of you might even tend to use it for yourself, in, in hindsight at least. There's one other time in the Bible, though, where this illustration was actually played out very literally. Uh, a, uh, a furnace of sorts with pain and suffering. Some of you might, might think of this story if, if you've been around the Bible much or, or if you grew up. Some of you haven't, that's okay. But you think back to the story in Daniel chapter 3. Um, and to just summarize it real quickly here. Say Daniel and a group of his friends who were Israelites, were in, they were in a captivity state. The, the reigning leader, Nebuchadnezzar, had set up this great graven image, uh, commanded everyone to bow to it. Does this sound familiar at all? Daniel's three friends uh, decided no, they wouldn't. Uh, they actually uh, knew and decided to worship the, the God they knew to be true, the God of the Bible. Uh, result, right, he decides to throw them into this furnace. And as the story is told, the furnace is actually so hot that the soldiers that Nebuchadnezzar has to throw them in, uh, they die just trying to throw these men in the fire. That's a hot fire. Uh, I don't want that job. No, thank you. But uh, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, what... Let me just read two verses here from it at the end of that story. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Which only makes me think of Isaiah 43. You don't need to turn there, but let me read this. It says, uh, Isaiah the prophet says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame uh, shall not consume you. Now, to our, to our question here, you know, if you look at Peter, what Peter says uh, in the passage here, you look at what Isaiah says here, uh, and this odd occurrence where this kind of played out literally in some way, what is God's promise uh, in these situations, you know, for those who, who believe and follow him? Well, it's not that, that we'll avoid pain and suffering. It's not even, uh, the conversation isn't even if, if pain and suffering will hit our lives. It's when <laughs> pain and suffering are in our lives. The promise is that God will so love us that we'll sense him walking with us. And think of how that played out so literally in that story of Daniel there. That the trial won't break us, uh, but it will refine you. It will give you splendor. Now, you could hear that thought. <laughs> Think, well, the idea is all very inspiring uh, that God uh, is with us in the middle of it. 
But how do we know it to be true? That's a really good question. And let me just say this way, that in Christianity, it's, it's really not until you get to the cross that you see how far, to, to what great extent that God went to be with us in our suffering. It's not until the cross. Let me tell you what I mean. It, really think about it, even just briefly in your mind, walk through uh, you know, stories of the large you know, narratives of major religions, right? In Christianity, you have God becoming vulnerable to suffering and death. You know, that God leaving uh, the comforts uh, of heaven and entering into our world in Jesus, right? Uh, that he, he left those on a rescue mission for humanity. Uh, and his, here he died, um, physically painful death. And we can talk about this moment, even emotionally. I'll explain what I mean by that. But just incredible suffering, right? You have God entering the world to, 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 care, to bear, to experience the pain of suffering. And as the you know, biblical narrative does it, all for us. I mean, what, how do we experience that? What, what do we see there? Well, just play it out through a few different lenses. This isn't us, but you know, imagine you're in a different place on the planet as a political um, you know, prisoner. And you look to the cross, you see Jesus uh, being lynched. If you've lost someone dear to you, and you look at the cross, you see the father losing his son. You know, if um, you're just crying out in pain, and you look to the cross, uh, you see Jesus very quite honestly in the garden beforehand saying, you know, why God, why God, you know, take, take this cup from me. Um, if, you, if you're suffering unjustly and you look to the cross, uh, you see Jesus there for other people's wrongdoing, right? And just the crosses, you see this incredible full extent of God's love poured out. Uh, let me read you um, Peter Kreeft, this guy that's been real helpful to me, actually a Catholic theologian and, and, uh, and professor. But he writes this. He says, just imagine... Every single pain in the history of the world all rolled together into a ball, eaten by God, digested, fully tasted eternally. In the act of creating the world, God not only said, let there be pretty little bunny rabbits and flowers and sunsets, but also let there be blood and guts and the buzzing of flies around the cross. The answer to suffering is, How could you not love this being who went the extra mile, who practiced more than he preached, who entered into our world, who suffered our pains, who offers offers himself to us in the midst of our sorrows? What more could he do? I think I find this a little interesting. Let me set it up this way. In class I had to take in uh, seminary. I had to read a lot on church history. And you would look at even some of Jesus' followers in, uh, and look at how they died. Some of them, like thinking of a book specifically I had to read called Fox's Book of Martyrs. <laughs> Story of Christians uh, who, bearing the name of Christ, gave up their lives on his account. Really from about just a few years after the time of Christ. To, I can't remember where he stops. Like maybe the 1800s or something like that. It's just 
all these wild stories. It's not really like bedtime reading, I'll warn you, if you want to go buy the book. Um, but it's interesting when you read those stories, some of those people, I would say, like, died better than Jesus. For instance, here's a story that just I'm remembering from that book of these two brothers who uh, had come to know Jesus Christ and were kind of similar to the whole theme of this book, right? They're at a point where they're, they're renounce Christ or death. And as he writes it, I'm trusting his research here, these brothers leap into boiling oil uh, singing. No, thank you, but you look at Gethsemane in that garden the night before uh, Jesus would go to the cross, and you just see Jesus in turmoil, right? God, take, let this pass. Let this pass from me. You know, why was Jesus even in more turmoil than some of his own followers who gave up their lives? And I think the, the, well, the answer lies in that he suffered what, he, what we've suffered, but he also suffered more, more than we suffered. If, if you take the storyline of the Bible, when Jesus was on the cross, not only was it physical pain and suffering, but he was there bearing, um, like cosmically, the, the wrongdoing of all of us. The weight of all of the world was bearing down on him and causing separation between him and the Father that he had known eternally, right? Like that's what's happening at the cross. This is the anguish that Jesus knew was coming. And just, just incredible. So just, I just want to like step back and let's just take our question to the cross, right? God, why are you allowing all this pain and suffering to continue? I think this is really important here. When you look at the cross, it doesn't tell us what the reason is. <laughs> Hope you don't feel like you're not getting your money's worth here. <laughs> when you look at the cross, it doesn't tell you what the reason is. But it does tell us some of what the reason isn't. I mean, think about it, right? It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that God is detached. He left heaven and entered our world and experienced our brokenness and more. It can't be he's indifferent. It can't be he doesn't care. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It doesn't fill in the blank for us but it scratches out a few big ones that surface when you're going through something hard, right? I have felt that in a big way. Say it this way. He he came on a rescue mission so that he could end evil and suffering without ending us. Um, It's a great book by John Stott. He was... um, died just a little over a year ago, but a British theologian uh, led Christ Church in London for... A lot, a lot of years. Stayed single his whole life trying to serve the Lord. Wrote some incredible stuff. I just love this. He says about the cross, he said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. It's at the cross that gives God his credibility. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? In the course of my travels, I've entered a number of Buddhist temples in different Asian countries. And I have stood respectfully before a statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, serene and silent, a remote look on his face. 
detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. The crucified one is the one for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death, and he suffered for us, dying in our place in order that we might be forgiven. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. In the words of, of Peter here, using this analogy of, uh, he says, the, the fiery furnace. When you look at uh, the furnace that Jesus went through for you, it can give you confidence that he's in your furnace with you. When you look back at the cross, it gives you confidence. It gives you confidence of his love that you can hang on to even when things are hard. So you have to look back at the cross. But you also have to look ahead. Look back, look ahead. Uh, Read with me real real quickly here, verses 3 through 6 in this passage. He says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Uh, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Just to draw your eyes again to the end of verse 3, as he's he's talking about how to face and walk through these various trials, he says, uh, it talks about this living hope. Um, And really, I'd say it this way, you just, you can't go through um, the real thick of it, pain and trials, without a living hope. You know, um, something that has power, something that's dynamic, that that can just really get you through it. In a real way, right? And it's interesting when we look at this passage. I mean, what, what is that hope, right? Um, and he says there it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection, it's like uh, it's the, the deposit, right, of what's going to come afterwards. It's, it's the first bite, if you will, of this enormously amazing feast uh, of bounty that, that's going to come, you know, towards us and people. But, like, by contrast, right, um, it's not, um, well, I just, I always have this image in my head. Growing up watching all the Looney Tunes, right, and when one of, I feel like uh, violence could be de- depicted more comically then and not be so harsh, but there was always, like, a cartoon character that, like, died, <laughs> And then he ended up on a cloud playing a harp, right? And this is our picture of heaven and eternity that's like seared into my brain. But it's not the one that Peter's talking about, right? It's not clouds and harps and ethereal. It's interesting when you look at the Bible, Jesus is, and if, if you're a person that's like on the cusp or you're considering Christianity, the view of the resurrection is very literal. That Jesus physically died and physically rose again. And everything actually rides on that. And this is what I mean by that. Like, the physical nature of his resurrection really is informative to us of the hope that's coming. 
And you look at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, you don't have people floating up uh, to you know, join an all-soul uh, and lose the physicality of, of, of this world and their bodies, right? You actually have heaven coming down, right? You've heard, some of you have probably heard it talk about the new heavens and new earth. It's, it's this world, but it's remade. It's, it's reborn. It's, um, well, let me read it this way. This is uh, Paul. As some of y'all might be familiar with this passage. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about this new world, and for those whose trust and faith is in Christ, our part in it, all summed up, packed into this tight word he calls uh, resurrection. He says here, I think I've got uh, slides for you. It's 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on perishable, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you uh, see what he's saying here? Especially with his his, uh, climax of his point here that death is swallowed up in victory. God's not preparing this ethereal, spiritual, non-physical world. He's preparing... uh, you know, that, that in a way you could view, well, I, we've gone through this life of pain and suffering, and at least this would be kind of a compensation for this years of, you know, uh, utopia that we lost, right? Paradise that was lost. But the, the resurrection, this is, you know, heaven come back down, as Paul says, right? That death is actually swallowed up um, by victory. It's, it's taken into it, right? Like it's when you, it's... Think of it as eating language, right? Um, when, you, when you take something in, when it's swallowed up, you digest it. It comes, in, it comes into you. You get bigger. I don't really want to talk about that. Um, thank you very much. But you take it in. You know, I guess the best analogy I can think of, um, probably this happened to everybody, right? You think of someone close to you. For some, it's not imagination, and, and I'm trying to be, even be sensitive with this illustration, but... My mind sometimes can go down that road of, you know, if I lost uh, one of my daughters and uh, you just, you know, you kind of like tune out, but your mind goes all the way to the end of that in the worst case scenario. And then you snap out of it and you're like, oh my goodness. And that's happened a couple times and I'll lean over and squeeze them tight and they give you that look like, you okay, dad? You know, (laughs) that kind of deal. But... And there's much worse, you know. But even just for that moment where I lost them, like, why do I run and, like, why do we do that? Why do we run and squeeze them? And, like, there's something about the losing, you know, and the, if you will, that makes the regaining that much sweeter. There's something about going through it that makes you appreciate it all the more. And I know this is complex, and, and I can't unravel it all for you, but I think this is what he's saying with suffering and death will be swallowed up in victory. That somehow the experience of going through the suffering will make the redemption infinitely more precious. 
um, let me see. C.S. Lewis put his finger on this, and maybe this sums it up, the idea here. He says, They say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You hear what he's saying there? That when we can look ahead, first at Jesus' resurrection, and for those who are in him, to what that means to your own resurrection, I don't know how to build for you a one-to-one correlation of of our trials. I don't. But somehow, those pains will be swallowed up in Jesus' victory, and he'll turn even those agonies into a glory. And I just think we have, like, you've got to have something to hang on to, right? And, and not because it's untrue, but because in the midst of this, like, this is actually something I can, like, wrap my arms around. Um, my daughters are going to have a hard life, probably for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but one of them is that I have passed on inevitably my nerdiness and things like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings are, we just like, we just put them on play in our house and they just constantly just stream. And uh, I do love those stories though, and especially Lord of the Rings. Um, it's like the, if you've ever watched or read the, the, the Return of the King, it's like the story that won't ever wrap up. I mean, it wraps up, but there's like four times where you think, oh, he's, unless you're reading the book, it's like, oh, it's about to end. But then you're like, wait, there's 60 more pages. And like Sam and Frodo throw the ring into the, into the mountain, right? And they come out and they're sitting on the rock. And the lava is still flowing down around them. And you're like, well, I guess it could wrap up because the ring's in there, right? Um, in the, it doesn't do this in the, in the movie, but in the story, Sam kind of goes unconscious, I guess. Rewakes, uh, and he's, you know, in a safe, comfortable bed. And Gandalf, the wizard sitting next to him that he thought had died earlier. And this is what he's waking up to. And... This is what that Samwise Gamgee, awesome character, said at that moment. He said, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I love that. And if you take the cross and the resurrection as true, then the answer ultimately is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Okay. I might have to read this, uh, but I want to talk about it. It was, it was, in fact, just this Saturday, it will be in two years um, since, we'll, uh, since my, we lost my sister. She uh, had an eight-year bout with cancer. Hers was an intriguing story. Uh, even medical researchers would say that to you, but that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. Uh, she had two bouts with different kinds of leukemia, two bouts with breast cancer, a long interruption from college, beyond a lifetime supply of chemo, months in oncology wards, a mastectomy, hair falling out four times. It was a surreal and ominous day when we sat in uh, the boardroom at her oncologist's office um, and heard him say that she had uh, about a month, which only was three weeks. My sister, though, do you know what got her in knots that day? It took me a while to figure out. To even fi- <laughs> she was upset 
that Mike was going to be alone for a while, her husband. And we're like, well, okay, I get that, but is that it? And she was, yeah, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to pass. Like, I believe all this. And she told us this. Like, Adam, I, I believe that the Jesus' resurrection means something real. And like, surreal is probably the right word because I don't, and I don't know that every person who's got faith in Christ would die the way she did, but that she, she didn't fear it. She didn't fear the death itself. She knew that Jesus' resurrection would guarantee her own and turn all of her terrible pain and suffering into future glory and joy. In short, she, she knew that everything sad would come untrue. Her confidence in the implications for the resurrection really changed her life and her death. You got to look back at the cross and look ahead to the resurrection. Just one more, real briefly here. We've got to look into something. Back at our core passage here, 1 Peter. Verse 12 says this. Yeah, there you go. It says it was revealed, talking about the prophets. He mentioned earlier, Old Testament prophets that foretold Jesus was coming. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were, uh, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit from heaven. These are things into which the angels long to look. So this good news are things into which angels long to look. That word, long, only gets more poignant. Like the more you, you dig it up a little bit, it's the the word most commonly was the word that we would translate something like lust. They obsessed to look into the good news, the story of God saving us. <laughs> you know, not just us, but you know, any who would come to him, right? Humanity. Why? You know, it's easy to think of the Gospels as just very elementary, right? It's, it's just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's, it's simple, right? And we move beyond it. Why did the angels never get tired of gazing into it, as Peter says? Let me just show you this real quickly. And, and think of it here again in terms of the gospel. You know, if Jesus' furnace that he went through, right? Going to the cross on our behalf. How did he get through it? Well, Hebrews says this, at the beginning of Hebrews 12, it says that uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He had this, this joy in front of him, like I think what we were saying earlier, a, a living hope that you could hang on to. Well, what was that hope? Um, well, you might say, like, well, even what I've been arguing here, right? Like it's this uh, eternity with, with God the Father. You know, this bliss with God the Father. Well, he already had that, right? He left that to come here. What, what was his living hope? You know, was it to, to glorify God? Yes, but how? Isaiah 53, right? Which, by the way, uh, it's just, I love this. Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus was born, and the incredible level that he just portrays the life of Christ even before he, he came to earth. He writes this. He says, the results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. The results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. Talking about Jesus. 
my righteous servant will justify many. You know what that means? You are his joy. You are his treasure. You are what he left heaven to come to earth for. You are what he had on his mind that gave him the fortitude to go through his incredible, incredible suffering on your behalf, on my behalf. It filled him with joy. And let me just say it this way. Maybe for those who, who feel like you're, you're hearing this conversation and maybe from the outside, if you will, not, not sure if you embrace all this, that the thought that you are his living hope, like I just encourage you to dwell on that because it could really make him <laughs> into your living hope if you could let yourself believe that it's true. The thought that he, that you were his living hope could make you his. And if you're able to look into the gospel, like the angels do in verse 12, it says there that they they never grow tired of it. And you're able to continually see new ways of what he's done for you. You'll be able to say in what Peter says in verse 8. I think I've got it up here. That though you have not seen him, you love him. Your griefs can be taken up into his story uh, and turned even into a glory. Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you for giving us uh, the full resources that we need to survive um, in the midst of pain and suffering whether it's up, up close and personal or if we see friends uh, experiencing it. God, we don't know why you allow it all, but we see you suffering on the cross. It assures us of your love for us. Uh, we see the empty tomb after you died. It gives us confidence, God, that the world that you will remake will turn even the agonies of this life into a glory. Now, as we turn to the Lord's table now, uh, take uh, this communion and remember this uh, more personally, more intimately. Uh, God, this story which the angels long to look into, this gospel, God, this incredible news of you saving us. God, may it give us strength. And Lord, may I even be bold enough to pray that you would give us joy here and now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.